Hello and welcome to Top Class, the podcast where we talk about schools, teachers and all things education. I'm your host, Duncan Crawford, and today we're talking about the future of learning. We're going to talk about current and future teaching culture, how teachers manage kids in the classroom and the future of education overall. In particular, what's happening in East Asian countries and what can others learn from them to prepare for the next decades ahead. To answer these questions and much more, I'm joined by Professor Patrick Newell from the Graduate School of Leadership and Innovation at Shizenkan University in Japan. He is also the National Project Manager in Japan for OECD to implement a social and emotional skills survey there. Professor Patrick Newell, thank you for joining us. It's a pleasure to be here. First up, so people have a better idea of who you are. You're a professor of science, tech and innovation. You're also a co-founder of TEDx Tokyo, which does TED style events. You co-founded the Tokyo International School almost three decades ago. You're involved in a number of other schools. You've created accreditation standards around the world for schools. And you're an author of numerous books. You're a public speaker. And I guess perhaps most importantly of all, I've read that you are a skateboarder. That's correct. I have a lot of board meetings. There you go. The first joke of the uh, podcast. <laughs> I hope there are many more. The chairman of the board, as some call me. <laughs> now, to those who are wondering about the future of education systems, the future of learning, um, how do you imagine the future should look like? Wow, that's a, a huge first question to ask me, Duncan. What's been interesting over the past close to three decades, is to see how little actually education has changed and how we've been really very much stuck in the 20th century. And we've had this emergence of technology that's been coming into the schools and classrooms and our learning, and we've been struggling with that integration. But if you look at the heavy emphasis moving forward on technology, I think really what education will become is more around how to be more human and how to work together. And that's why I'm really interested in what the OECD is doing around the social and emotional skills survey, is to measure more how we can be more human, how we can understand ourselves, how we can work together as, as being one of the most important things moving forward, as well as understanding how to use technology. And there's, for about a year and a half, I studied very carefully the concept of digital twin and singularity. Singularity being when the human intelligence and machine intelligence will equal. Some people say it'll never happen. People like Ray Kurzweil says it'll happen in 2030. And when I think about this really carefully, what is the role of technology? What is the role of the digital world? And how can we work together to synthesize what we learn and how we learn with the brain? And the digital twin concept is, if you think about it, all of the information we have stored on the cloud, how we use our technology now, our smartphones, and how that shifted how we use our brain, it's quite interesting. If you can imagine moving forward, what do we really need to learn? How do we really need to learn? And what skills are important moving forward? And it's finding that balance right, between the digital cortex and the neural cortex, 
or what I sometimes say moving forward in a world of creative collective intelligence. Okay, so there's a lot to unpack there. Let's go through it. I mean, I guess to start with, you're based in Japan, you're familiar with many Eastern Asian countries' education systems. What's the current state of play in regards to this? Are they becoming more focused on the use of technology in education systems? So what's been interesting, if we were to just talk about the region of East Asia, if you look at, for example, the OECD's PISA rankings, in the top 10, you have Singapore, Hong Kong, Japan, Macau, Taiwan, South Korea, and China in the top 10 of the PISA rankings, which measures math, reading, and science. The three countries that that are also in the top 10 are Estonia, Canada, and Finland. So there's obviously something happening from the perspective of developing the cognitive skills. But if you look at the education systems in East Asia, they are typically um, high-stake, examination-based, quite rigorous, and they have strong entrance exams to get into the universities, the top universities, and typically once they've gotten into the top universities, they, they work for the government or they work for the top companies. So really, from a whatever age, actually in Japan is kind of unique because they also have these private schools, top schools, that you can get in a preschool and get the equivalent of a degree from Oxford or Cambridge or Harvard or Stanford or Keio University in Japan's case. So if you get in at the age of five, for example, you get into the top university and you're pretty much guaranteed a top job in a top company. And so the competition has gone lower and lower and lower, but very much the university sets the bar like many countries in the world. And then below that, the different countries work towards that in a very competitive way because once you leave school, then you're pretty much guaranteed to get into a top company with that education. That's the norm in Asia. And they all have mandatory school systems. And interestingly enough, they all have some kind of a a moral education, a moral character education as well. Um, So there's there's somewhat of a balance there. And if you look at, you know, you look at the religions, uh, you know, there's a lot of Buddhism. There's a lot of kind of, um, Japan, for example, is Buddhist and Shintoism. So there's a certain very strong connection with spirituality in many ways, in these countries as well, which I think is quite interesting. But they're all very competitive. And once you get into a school, you're pretty much, in Japan anyway, the escalator ride up. Or once you get into a particular university, you're pretty much set for the rest of your life with a good career. You you mentioned the moral education elements, how character development is an important part of going to school in Japan and other East Asian countries, but it's not just about academic learning and skills. What are the main things other countries could potentially learn from Japan and other East Asian countries in this area? Yeah, what's quite interesting in Japan, children from six years old, they walk to school by themselves. They feel safe and they are safe. They arrive at school, and there's usually some children sitting outside, standing outside, greeting them when they arrive. And then they go into the classroom, and they all start off together with a common greeting. They take, actually, they take their shoes off, 
and change into their indoor shoes. So there's just a lot of kind of cultural things that are being tied into this in kind of um, thinking about your environment. And then the children will serve each other uh, lunches during lunchtime. A certain children will be allocated during a certain week to bring the lunches to the other children. And at the end of the school day, all of the children will clean the school together, for example, as some cultural things, right? So embedded in already are certain aspects of the we culture, thinking about others, thinking about taking care of other things. So in some ways, that's built already into the education system. And then after school programs are also quite interesting. So a lot of things that happen around kind of moral education or, or working together happen after school. So there's a lot of after school activities that connect. I remember the headlines during the World Cup last year in Qatar. Japan shocked most of the world by beating Germany. But then Japan's players also caused shock, to some anyway, by cleaning up their dressing room and leaving it spotless. Uh, which many remarked on at the time. And I suppose this is a direct result of the culture you're describing and how children are taught in Japan. Is that right? Absolutely. Absolutely. It's common sense. I mean, people, a lot of these things are just common sense. Thinking about others, picking up your trash, you know, leaving things better than, than when you receive them kind of thing. It's very common. So why do you think the rest of the world watches Japanese players and society behaving this way. Globally, you know, many people compliment Japanese people for this type of behavior, for cleaning up, for taking responsibility, for thinking of others. But then other countries, it appears, don't attempt to change the behavior or culture of their citizens in this way. Is there a reason why others don't mimic Japan in this way? What's quite interesting is the difference between, you know, the collective societies and individual societies, right? So a lot of the countries that are in East, Eastern Asia, East Asia, they are collective societies. In a collective society, you're thinking about how you can be similar to others or not stand out. Where in an individualist society, you're much, very much thinking about yourself and how you're unique and how you're creative and how you're special. And a lot of the Asian cultures, it's much more about the we than the me. So when you think about cleaning up after, of course you would want to think about that, right? You'd want to think about others and, and, and working together with others in a collectivist way. So I think a lot of that has to just do with the collectivist mindset. What's interesting though, if you look at the demographics of say Japan and Korea, uh, Korea is 99% Korean and Japan is like 98.2% Japanese. So two probably of the most homogeneous societies in the world. So the we in many ways is quite easy. And what's also fascinating that I find in a lot of the East Asian countries is they're highly contextual. And so there's a lot of things that are not actually said. There's a lot of things that are understood. And I think it has a lot to do with because they're very homogeneous and because you have to think about other people. You know, very often in, in individual societies, you have to get other people's attention through really kind of over-exaggerating or, or somehow raising your voice. But a lot of times in some of these Eastern Asian countries, it's very much about reading the air and understanding what people are saying without saying anything. So it's quite interesting. And the education systems set this up. So the focus on these qualities like responsibility, compassion, self-control, what can other countries do, if it is desirable, to 
copy this in the future of education to make changes to better societies? It's really just shifting from the me to the we in many ways. So, and what's wonderful, you see in a lot of different countries as well, there's a lot more uh, group-based learning that's taking place, learning in groups, and much more about the collective. I mean, when I think about the future of learning, what I would really love to see is a school is available to the community 24-7. And the time that the children are in school, let's say normal classroom time, is when they are doing what would normally would be after-school activities, making, creating, doing, playing together. Because how you wire the brain for the future is by making and create, creating things. So if you imagine that you, know, you, you want to talk about the future, well, the future doesn't exist. Well, how do you create the future if it doesn't exist? Well, you have an image or a vision in your mind about something you want to create. And then you take all of your existing information and you aggregate that into some kind of a meaning that then would allow you to create that future or vision that you have. So making and creating is really important. And making and creating with other people and learning your role and how you can work together with other people is huge. So to me, I would love to see school because you have all these children together or even the company scenario in many ways that you have humanity together. And yet you have these students sitting there and listening to a teacher sharing the same thing with all the children at the same time. It's ridiculous. I mean, it is so bizarre that we actually think that all 11-year-olds should learn the same thing at the same time to some degree. Now, there's variants of this. But imagine if that was done by an AI tutor and the curriculum that's prescribed by the government is all put online and each student goes at their own individual pace at what they're comfortable with and still completes what the Ministry of Education has prescribed, but at their own pace and at their own time at their own level. Let me pick up on some of the things you've said there, because I imagine, to some ears, it's quite controversial. You're effectively talking about tearing up entirely the way education systems operate to a certain extent. You mentioned the possibility of over 24-7 school. I imagine some teachers will be saying, how, how are we going to stuff that? Also, you talked about kids going to school to create and play and make, but not so much being focused on specific lessons. So I guess my first question is, how can this practically happen in reality? And is it in any way achievable, knowing how hard it is to reform education systems? So what's interesting is, we're not actually talking about what the Minister of Education or the education systems are asking students to learn. What we're talking about is how they learn. So the first step is the things that really could be, let's say a master teacher, master class, whatever you have, a master teacher. And you know, the interesting part is that you end up getting this variance in teacher quality and a shortage of teachers. And in the countryside, often you may not get the quality of the teachers that you would in some of the private schools in this, in this you know, city centers kind of thing. But imagine if a master teacher delivered a class a world-class class, and all the children could watch that video at their own time. And some children may need to watch it you know, at, at two times speed, and some children may need to watch it four times. It it's really creates an adaptive learning situation when you have a more of a kind of a content that needs to be shared. 
Now, hands-on, you know, experiments, all the things, you know, all the things you would do around hands-on science and anything that would really require maybe making and creating something possible would be done within a school environment. This is what I, so the school becomes a place to make and create and collaborate and experience things. And you take a lot of the academic that is more content driven and allow that to be online with master teachers and the students doing that at their own pace. So a teacher becomes much more of a guide or a coach than teaching those specific subject areas per se. Is watching a video as engaging as being in a classroom where you're with a teacher, where they're commanding your attention? And what if, for example, a student watching a video wants to ask a question? You know, how do you deal with that situation? So there's a couple different, so, you know, yes, you know, the live interaction is great. And, and being, uh, being at a live theater versus watching a video of a theater, for example, is, is, is a different experience for sure. But I think the trade-off of having a master teacher deliver something, having a student being able to watch things at their own pace and go at their own pace, hugely outweighs listening to a teacher actually lecture something to a student. And that's the main part I'm talking about is the lecture aspect of it, the sharing of content aspect of it. A lot of the other teaching and learning that can happen in a very, in a very different way, a much more project-based learning, creating portfolios, making and creating, doing things. Is there not a danger that some students who aren't interested in lessons necessarily, more focused on the playing and having games or whatever, that they're not going to watch those videos or they just press play but don't engage with them so they're not actually taking any information in? How do you deal with that? I mean, just like in any situation, you're going to test those students on what they've learned and you're going to test them on the content, right? So there's going to be, it's a very similar system where you're saying, okay, you need to learn this content. Here's the questions we're going to ask to see if you have learned the content. I mean, a student could actually make a short video and share their answers, for example. I mean, there's a lot of things that we can do using technology and, and video to actually really get a true understanding instead of you know, here's the, here's the question and write a couple sentences kind of scenario. So, I mean, technology can play huge roles above and beyond just having a, a tutor or an AI tutor. So what I was saying is that teachers become much more and much more human. They can focus their time. I mean, one of the reasons why we're losing so many educators around the world is because they're burnt out, they're overloaded, and they're dealing with a large number of children. I mean, you, Duncan, you have a four-year-old. Imagine having... 24-year-olds that you're dealing with all day long and trying to monitor and get... I don't want to imagine it. That's not that's that's a nightmare what you're describing right there. Right? I mean, and on the 24-7 thing, I mean, what I meant by that was that we have amazing space. We have gymnasiums, we have swimming pools. I mean, imagine if the school became the community hub and everybody was utilizing those facilities. And it, no, the teachers don't need to be there, but it much, becomes much more of a community place than it becomes a place just for students of that age group that are learning. And, there's, and, and then you can, I think with that, in the context of that, you can build a lot better facilities. And then eventually with technology, you know, you'll be able to, you know, let's just say little, you know, Hiro in Japan loves soccer. Hiro could go play three hours of soccer if he wanted to, as long as he had all of his academics done and all the stuff that was done, and go play with a group of kids and play soccer and follow his passion and go deeper into that. I'm intrigued to know, 
if you've raised these ideas with policymakers in Japan, for example, and if you have, what's their reaction been? I have not. Um, Japan is, you know, here's the fun, here's the part that's kind of interesting to me, and this is what really is going to fascinate me about the OECD SSES survey that we're doing around the social and emotional skills and a comparative of, of 17 different cities in 17 different countries is going to be see the, the differences in the social and emotional skills. So in Asia, East Asia, you know, people are quite disciplined. It's highly competitive. Which school you go to is going to determine pretty much the rest of your life. So it's high stakes kind of scenario. So it isn't a lot of project based learning. It isn't a lot of inquiry. It's, it's very much skills driven. And it's the old saying where attention goes, energy flows, right? So the attention here is around what, what PISA currently measures is the main attention as well as their own mother tongue. And this is pretty much throughout East Asia. But if you look at other education systems, let's say in like some of the Scandinavian countries, or you look at Canada, or you look at some of the others, like we said, it was Estonia, Finland, and Canada also were in the top 10. They have much more of a holistic, inquiry-based, project-based learning kind of education system. And for a while, um, Australia and New Zealand um, as well were, were quite high up in the OECD PISA rankings. And they do not have that very disciplined kind of Asian, you know, work hard, have patience mindset. So there's quite a difference between, between the, uh, the Asia and say Europe, for example. So what future skills are needed? What are the key ones in 10 years time, for example, which people should be highlighting on their CVs? Well, so what's, What's interesting in is, imagine if you had a digital portfolio that shared all of the things that you have created over time and you had taken a variety of different types of assessment to get a deep understanding of who you are. So where attention goes, energy flows. And the first step in understanding who you are or having awareness is some kind of reflection and self-reflection. So in Japan, this spring, we will be launching a 32 skill social and emotional behavior assessment with 96 questions that will allow from students from 13 years up through adulthood to look at themselves and look at these 32 different areas. Because if you haven't really stopped and paused and looked and thought about who you are, how do you really know who you are? And we're also adding to this as well, where the teachers and the parents will take the same assessment. So we have a level of empathy and we're doing a 360 evaluation where we will have the parents and the teachers also do an assessment of the child or themselves kind of scenario. So it's not just one's own thought of who they are kind of thing, right? And the reason for that is really to raise our awareness in who we are. If you think about how the skills are changing and you look at all the different, you know, the different forecasts of what are the future skills, they're a huge combination between skills related to technology or being human. And I just met actually um, a woman who is looking at computational skills. 
and was looking at coding and looking at mathematics and looking at what, what do you need, what skills do you need to be really proficient in technology as well. And, you know, I mean, this chat GPT has been so interesting, right? Because it's now what do we really need to know? So look into your crystal ball for me. How are education systems going to change in the next decade or so? Is AI going to lead a revolution in that time or is it going to take or is it going to happen over a longer time frame? Well, if you look at some of the predictions that are happening right now about the convergence of exponential technologies. Now, whether that's that every child in the world is going to be connected to the Internet or this whole concept of metaverse and augmented reality and virtual reality. And what we're already seeing ChatGPT doing, you know, in the past six months is just revolutionized in so many ways. Um, what we think we need to know and what skill set we think we need to have. And so it has a huge potential. Now, the part that's always interesting for me and for the last, you know, three decades has been the government's always going to prescribe what they think their country needs to learn. Right now, that's done in a couple ways. One that's done through what they are, the universities are requiring. And then what the university requires just drops all the way down. It just, it, it just spirals downward. The other is that in many ways, OECD, at least in, this, in those countries, um, Japan really, really respects OECD. And if they're measuring those three things, Japan is measuring itself based on the, you know, the, the ability to read and the science and mathematics. And so that's the how how we learn what the government expects us to learn or looks at as being that we are, are, are sound intellectual human beings. I'm intrigued on what you think the balance will be in the future. You've talked about online learning, about AI tutors um, versus you know, face-to-face learning in the classroom. Is there going to be a time and place where face-to-face learning disappears? I hope not. Because we want to be human. Um, but I'll give you a, a, a kind of a fun little thing. If, if, you, uh, if you think about it, and, and, you know, technology in the classroom, right? So in, in 1988, teachers wanted to ban calculators, right? And now we're looking at the, the implications of, of chat, GPT, and AI in the classrooms. And so... It will be interesting to see if the governments themselves change, and OECD as well changes what, where, where the emphasis goes or how those, where the attention goes by, by what we assess. So to answer your question, as we move forward, technology is going to be much, much more seamless. And we're going to really need to think about what do we need to learn and then how we're going to learn it. And then will it provide us more time to be human and be more connected with each other? And so far, we've thought that technology in the classrooms was going to save us a bunch of time. And, and, and it, it maybe in some ways it hasn't. And maybe it's, it, we've gone backwards in some ways. Do you have any concerns about AI being used for kids to cheat on their exams? Absolutely. Just like kids who would have their smartphones cheat on the exams. But it used to be you wrote it down on a piece of paper or, or you put it on your hand. Um, 
You know, I, I think that's just human behavior and our ability to track that and measure that and see that is an ongoing challenge we have with humanity and ethics. Is there a risk that you know, teachers could be put out of jobs if this technological revolution happens where everyone's using AI tutors? Well, already there's a shortage of teachers, one. Two, the existing teachers are overworked. Three, they don't have a time to really, to really guide and nurture and care for and work with the children they have. So I hope once the teachers realize, hey, I don't have to teach 60% of the content or 70% of the content the government's asking me to deliver, I'm letting technology do that, and now I've got double the time to really spend time with the students to do things they love to do and have them make and create and be human together. I mean, that, that, to me, that has huge, huge positive impacts. Look, final thoughts. Um, you're involved in numerous schools, the Tokyo International School as well. You've given a lot of ideas here about how you think the world of education should change in the future. Um, what are you going to be doing personally to make those changes happen, for example, at the Tokyo International School or elsewhere? So the hope, and, and this really is related to the OECD and the SSES, is that I had somewhat given up on trying to help shift the education systems until uh, Guma Prefecture in Japan decided to join this OECD pilot. And Japan really, really respects OECD. And if OECD is going to be measuring social and emotional skills, the human side, I felt that would be really powerful. Now, right now, there's not a common assessment. And there's actually really not even a common assessment in the world for measuring social and emotional behavioral skills. So we have this huge gap in an area that is increasingly more and more important. So the focus that I really have moving forward in Japan, and I'm specifically focusing in Japan beyond the OECD work, is on really getting this assessment to be the common assessment in Japan. And then let data, be data driven, let data then drive the changes we need to make. And hopefully together with the OECD, hopefully continues with this social and emotional survey and makes it become part of one of the regular assessments that's being done by putting that emphasis will really create a bright, well-balanced future around the academic or cognitive and the non-cognitive skills moving forward. And I think Japan and probably other East Asian countries as well can really share with the world how to be together, how to be one, how to be harmonious, and how to have a peaceful, peaceful world in general. And that's what I love about Japan, and I think Japan can role model that, but there's a lack of confidence in data right now to share that. And on that note, let's end it there. Professor Patrick Newell, thank you so much for joining me for this conversation. It's been a pleasure, a real pleasure to talk to you. Uh, before we go, uh, we've talked a lot about the future, obviously. To gaze into your future for a moment, what do you see yourself doing in 10 years' time? In 10 years time, I, I truly hope that I will be still very focused on raising awareness in Japan and creating programs and systems so that people can be more human positive and share that with the rest of the world, what a peaceful, harmonious world we can have through Japan as a society. Thank you again, Patrick, for your time. It is all we have time for. 
To those listening, I hope you've learned something from this episode about the future of education, about Eastern Asian countries, about Japan. Thank you so much for listening. I hope you can join us again for another episode of Top Class in the near future. Thank you.